The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. It's wonderful to see every face here this morning. Good morning. There you go. There's one. (laughs) Well, if we have our Bibles open, I'm going to go ahead and open in prayer once more before we get to, to the preaching of God's Word. And Father, we, we do come to you um, as your children, God, ones who are exceedingly uh, unworthy to be in your presence, to hear from you, to have our eyes open to the truth, but we come to you in prayer through one who is exceedingly worthy of all favor from you, your son, in whom you are well pleased. So it is in, in his name that we come to you, God, asking that you would bless your people, bless your church with your life-giving word. God, that which you have placed upon my heart from this text, God, be gracious, too loud to be imparted entirely, that we would share together. the joy of hearing from our God speak, to have our hearts more uh, enraptured with the praise, with the magnificence of Christ. So by the authority of your word and the empowering of your Holy Spirit, I ask for your favor to be shown. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well... Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So think, along with me, of some big event that you have either attended or even viewed on TV. Something like a football game. You know, that was last Sunday. Many of us here perhaps saw one of those. But but even a concert or a a boxing or a MMA uh, matchup, mixed martial arts, something like that. You know, each of these... Each of these examples had at the start the entrance of a team, the band or a fighter. And that entrance was an opportunity for each to make a statement. Whether it was blasting through a large banner bearing bearing the name of your team or exploding onto the stage from the floor as Garth Brooks was so famous to do. Or it was perhaps the, the, having your prestigious entourage accompanying you through the masses with your choice song, blasting the stadium as you approach the octagon, fighting arena, making a statement. The entrance is that time a statement is made for all to see before the event began. And the Hunger Games and those movies Katniss and Peta's signature entrance 
when their garments set ablaze while riding in on a chariot pulled by sleek black horses at the ceremonial openings of the Hunger Games, it captures that well, making a statement upon their entrance. And what we have before us this morning is, I believe, the greatest entrance in history leading toward an event. The event is the coronation, the inauguration of King Jesus. All four Gospels, all four Gospels are sure to record this monumental account. Jesus makes a statement upon entering Jerusalem during Passover week when the inauguration ceremony of the King of Kings would take place on Calvary. We're crowned, where he is crowned with a crown of thorns. Thus enters Jesus as king. As one commentary noted, Christ, Christ was king from this hour. And all the other parables from this point, his person is the center. He speaks and acts as king. Now we must distinguish between the time when the people heralded him, heralded him as king and when God lifted him up to his throne. Between Palm Sunday, which is where, we're, where we are at right now in the text, and the resurrection, which takes place the following Sunday, one week from this day, and the ascension of the King of Kings, recorded for us in the book of Acts, where Jesus is caught up into the clouds and is seated at the right hand of the power of God. Christ was a king from this hour. In our course through the text this morning, which has some, it has some overlaying truths within it. And so in light of that, imagine, as, imagine us as a, as a bare-boned wick, having no wax on it whatsoever. And as this unclothed wick, my aim is to, is to take us through the passage, you know, dip Dip us through thoroughly with each statement of truth revealed in the passage so that in the end, we'll have three distinct layers of wax, three distinct truths of Christ that we are clothed in ourselves that we may from here represent him to the world accordingly. Three distinct truths the statement of truth made at the entrance of the king of glory into the city of God, as described in the Old Testament, at the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, Jerusalem. Thus enters the king of glory and the statements of truth made by his triumphal entry into Jerusalem are, Jesus is a humble king. Jesus is to be worshipped as king. And Jesus takes inventory as king. Okay, the first statement of truth made a king Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, seen in Mark 11, verses 1 through 8, Jesus is a humble king. A first note, before we get into the passage, 
briefly, on a first note, I find it necessary to make a distinction as arrayed beautifully by our humble King Jesus here. He is ever so confident. He is ever so confident. He has been instructing his disciples of the suffering coming to him in Jerusalem. And he leads the journey there. Remember, he's walking ahead of them to the amazement of the, of the disciples. And he's not entering the city secretly, but he's doing so publicly and cheerfully with acclamations of joy. He is not fearing the evil that awaits him by whose hands he would suffer severely and be delivered over to the Roman army to be crucified. I like how, um, how Matthew Henry states it. I really dig this. He says, though he was now but taking the field and girding on the harness, yet being fully assured of complete victory, he thus triumphs as though he had put it off. Isn't that great? I love that. In other words, before Jesus on the cross spoke the words, it is finished, he enters the battlefield with a quiet confidence that it will be accomplished. Nothing will deviate him from, from fulfilling the Father's will. And so like Jesus, one can be confident and still humble. One can be confident and still humble. Such is a Christ-like attribute and there is a difference in one who is confident and one who is arrogant. Confidence and humility do go together, whereas arrogance accompanies pride. Confidence has, has eyes on the Father in heaven, while arrogance's eyes, arrogance's gaze is fixed on self. It's what the Apostle Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 3, 4, when he says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. A Christian walking in obedience with their eyes on Jesus can be, a very, humble, can be very humbly confident. And Jesus, our confident king, confident, humble king, arrays this beautifully. His eyes are set on fulfilling the Father's will. And he is directing these events with certainty as they draw near to Jerusalem. Now let's look at verse 1. As they draw near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. You see how King Jesus is directing these events with certainty, acting as king? Continue in verse 4. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untie it. And they untied it. And sure enough, as anticipated by King Jesus, verse 5 some of those standing there, the other gospels note them as the cult's owners, they said to them, to the disciples, what are you, what are you doing untying the cult? And they, the disciples, told, 
them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Let's hold up there for a brief moment. Now we, now we know really nothing about this cult's, these cults' owners. Very little. Just what's in this passage right here. Whether there was prearrangements made by Jesus or if it's God's hand sovereignly directing their hearts as he does the hearts of kings like a stream of water, turning it wherever he will. With either one, though I would lean toward the latter, King Jesus is demonstrating his lordship overall. He is always in control, humbly confident and always in control, which ought to be a, a comfort to us to know this. That ought to serve as a comfort. He is always in control. And those standing there, the cult's owners, upon hearing the disciples relay the words of King Jesus, they don't hesitate. They don't hesitate to have Jesus borrow the colt whom the disciples bring to Jesus, verse 7, and they threw their cloaks on it, and Jesus sat on it. Jesus is a humble king. He rode in to Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. As Luke also makes, as Luke's gospel also makes known in this account, a, a colt that had never been ridden before. It's, it's still with its mother, Luke notes, and therefore yet to be used. Never ridden. It's not a, it's not a noble steed, well-groomed and ridden to, or and ridden or to pull a chariot for the king to come into. No, it's a, it's a foal of a donkey. The animal was not a beast of any recognition. A foolish one could make jokes about how it appeared. Awkward confirmation, raggedy mane, poor gait. I mean, my daughter Grace spends a length amount of time grooming and preparing her horse to ride. Every time. Every time she saddles up, much time is put into grooming the entire animal, hooves included, right? This is a borrowed colt, not ready to be ridden. In fact, never been ridden before. And it comes to Jesus as is. It doesn't even have a proper saddle, even. You know, the disciples' coats serve as that. And if this colt was anything like our horse, Smarty Pants, he probably had earth all over him from rolling around the ground a couple times a day, especially if he just had a bath, okay? And then there's, and there's certainly nothing wrong with proper care of a horse as my daughter faithfully provides. That's right and good, but that's not the point. The point is the humbleness of our king. The humbleness of our king. Kings were known to enter cities in splendor, Okay? Splendor, especially during coronation or after a victorious battle. It may not even have been a beautifully groomed steed being ridden on, or steeds, plural, pulling a chariot on which the king rode, but instead, elephants. I don't want horses. I want elephants to lead me into the city. That was done. That was known by kings, accompanied by troops, not just elephants, but I want my soldiers, my army, as my entourage, as I come into this city, making his loud and bold statement about himself, that is what kings did. The king of glory, King Jesus, on the other hand, 
he enters Jerusalem as a humble king. This is our king. And henceforth, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, we are brought into by faith in him. God is a humble God. His servant king, Jesus, is a humble king, born in humility, lived a humble life, depended upon others for his provisions during his earthly ministry. He went upon water in a borrowed boat. He used others' garments as a saddle on a borrowed colt. He will soon eat the Passover meal in a borrowed chamber and will be buried in a borrowed tomb. Even that which adorned his entrance on the road, you know, the decorations, the trappings, they weren't extravagant makings. (laughs) They were people's raggedy clothes and palm branches that they cut in the field as his decor, leading him into... As he, as he came into this city. We see that in verse 8. He who is the creator of all things is humble through and through. And he is to be worshipped. He is to be worshipped. Jesus is to be worshipped as king. The second statement of truth as Jesus' entrance into the city of Jerusalem Jesus is to be worshipped as king. Verses 9 through 10. Jesus enters Jerusalem as its king, and the people accept him as such. Returning to verse 8 and reading through verse, verse 10. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. Blessed is the coming king, of the, is the coming kingdom of our father David. The messianic hope for the restoration of the Davidic kingdom. That was the people's chief primer igniting the jubilee they were expressing during this moment in the Passover celebration. But their understanding was misplaced. Their understanding was misplaced because their zeal was for a ruling Messiah and a political kingdom. Okay? Not realizing, and and as time will tell in the coming weeks, where the same people cry out, crucify him, the same crowd does, crucify him. They were not accepting the fact that the very one humbly entering the city of Jerusalem was indeed their Messiah. They did not know the time of their visitation, as the other Gospels make known. Jesus' very words, they didn't know that, even though the very acts that they were witnessing and engaging in were fulfilling prophecy of just that. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. They were fulfilling that. 
They were quoting Psalm 118.25. Hosanna in the highest. Save now. You know, the most lofty salute to be given to Israel's promised deliverer. Blessing him as God's favored one. Showing him honor and praise. In this moment, fulfilling prophecy as they do when they reject their Messiah King. Saying, we have no king but Caesar. Right? Fulfilling Psalm 118.22 there. They reject the cornerstone. Jesus is the messianic king. And he and he alone fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy about him. Every prophecy. A prophecy, a foretelling, a prediction, a declaration of something to come. As God only knows future events with certainty, no being but God or some person informed by God can utter a real prophecy. Every prophecy recorded in Scripture about the coming Messiah, Jesus fulfilled. We have some astute math students in the congregation this morning, among us here. Try this one on for size. Just, just a handful of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. He was born in Bethlehem. He was preceded by a messenger, John the Baptist. He entered Jerusalem on a donkey. He was betrayed by a friend who received 30 pieces of silver He was silent before his accusers. He died in the manner Romans used for criminals, crucifixion, during which they pierced his hands and his feet. That's seven. Seven of the 300. Peter Stone, in his classic book, Science Speaks, calculated the chance of any man fulfilling these prophecies, just the seven, just the seven of the 300, any man fulfilling these prophecies even down to the present time, and he calculated it to be one in one zero 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 ten to the 17th power. To help us to help us visually comprehend the staggering odds of this probability, Stoner proposed that, figuratively speaking, it would be equivalent to taking many silver dollars and having them laying across the state of Texas, stacking them, rather, and in doing so, we would find that they would stack up across the state two feet deep. Maybe my distance is wrong there, but two feet deep, silver dollars. Now, because we're not done. We're not done. Take one of those coins and mark it. Mark one of the silver dollars, place it back in with the others, and then stir them all up, all over the state. Then blindfold an enthusiastic volunteer and tell him that he can go all across the state, wherever he wants, but that he must... He must pick out that marked silver dollar. 
That is how difficult it would be for one man to fulfill these prophecies. Just the seven. Unless, of course, he did so because of divine appointment. These are the odds of just seven of the 300 Old Testament. If that number was 48, it'd be 10 to the 157th power. I've witnessed my children recently, you know, have mental angst over difficult math or chemistry, right? But that doesn't even compare. I mean, do you feel your head either implode or explode at the staggering facts? It ought to. To summarize it in one word, it's impossible. Impossible. But as we know, from a few weeks back, in Mark 10, 27, with man, it is what? Impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. For Jesus is not just a man, though he is fully man. He is also God. And therefore, he and he alone is able to fulfill every prophecy written of him. And listen, Jesus knows every prophecy about him. He came to fulfill all righteousness. Indeed, he is the word of God that became flesh. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Israel's promised deliverer. Israel's hope. Our hope. Our deliverer. God did what the law weakened by sinful flesh could not do. Make one perfect. God fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law through Jesus. It was the Father's will to do so. Jesus did so victoriously. He did it. With the humble confidence, our promised deliverer comes down the 300 feet from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem as a humble king riding on a donkey to face our enemy. As stated by Tim Mackey, Jesus let evil exhaust its power on him using its only real weapon, death. That's how the victory was attained. Jesus let evil exhaust all its power on him using its only real weapon, death. Our king sacrificed his life that his people may be delivered, may be set free from captivity to Satan, set free from a life of sin, set free to worship him who alone is deserving of our worship. Church, Jesus Jesus doesn't summon worship as if to say, please come and worship me. He receives it. He is to be worshiped, period. 
One beckons others to come and worship. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Worship the Lord in, in the splendor of holiness. All creation worships Christ. The, let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills sing for joy together. If these people were silent, Jesus said, in this account noted by Luke, if they were silent, even the stones would cry out in praise to the coming king. And I personally don't take that as a hyperbole. I believe that would have happened. He is to be worshiped. King Jesus is to be worshiped. And all nations that he has made shall come and worship him and shall glorify his name either now in joyful submission to his rule and reign in their hearts, while those who remain unrepentant, they praise God in his wrath, executed by Jesus Christ the righteous. Psalm 76.10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you shall put on like a belt. God's attributes of justice, of righteousness, and wrath is praised by condemning unrepent, unrepentant sinful man for all eternity in hell. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every eye will see the King of glory at his second coming whose brightness will bring to nothing the lawless one. Satan and all of his forces of evil will come to nothing at the brightness of his coming. You know, hear me, friend. Every soul will glorify God, either as a vessel of mercy, harmonizing together their songs of deliverance as one song sung for all eternity in heaven, or as a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction, glorifying God in receiving their just due eternal punishment. Jesus is to be worshiped as king. He will be glorified. He is glorified. He is to be worshiped as king. And as we move on to our final verse in consideration this morning, he takes inventory as king. Jesus takes inventory as king. Let's read verse 11. And he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus takes inventory as king. As king. He takes it all in. All is naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom he must give account. And it's so important not to overlook the significance of this moment. The significance of Christ coming to the temple. God's Passover lamb himself going to the very place where sacrifices offered to God were made. The Lamb of God, as John the Baptist referenced him. He does this, he does this wide and silent survey of how the temple is being used. 
God only knows what was going through Jesus's heart and mind in that moment. Considering the, the glory and magnificence of the old covenant and his mission to bring in the new with its surpassing glory. The mediator of a new covenant releasing us from the law, going to the cross to die, to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old of the written code. King Jesus, he's, he's in this moment on the precipice. He's on the pre- precipice of this moment. I mean, can you imagine the emotion he was experiencing? As one commentator noted, he said, what thoughts touching the past must have arisen, must, must have arisen, and how deep his emotions have been in the consciousness of what he came to do. When he compared the magnificence and glory of the old covenant with the spiritual life of the new covenant, which far removed from all outward demonstration, unseen and unpretending, was creating for itself, for itself its own form in sweet and gentle silence when he compared the magnificence and glory of the external temple and the spiritual temple built of living stones in which his spirit should dwell and where should be established forever the worship of of his heavenly Father in spirit and in truth. I dare not try to rephrase that. With such contemplations, likely in the heart and mind of Jesus, he takes inventory of the temple, its current use and function as to whether it's being used as God intended. He takes it all in, and though he was, he was very likely, very, and though it was all very disgraceful, the practices going on in the temple, he doesn't give full vent in that moment, despite the displeasure within him that was sure to be great. He processed it, he slept on it, and deals with, with it the following day, as we will see next week because he retires to Bethany, most likely the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, which generally served as Jesus' abode when he was in Judea. He retires there for the night with the 12 after taking inventory of the temple to see whether it's being used as God intended, as he still does today for every born-again believer. Whose body? is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Each living stone, we are those living stones, you and me, the Christian. The temple being built, not by the hands of men, but by the hands of God. As a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's that precipice moment he was standing when that was being ushered in by him and the old was passing away. We are that new temple. And he takes inventory of us. 
of his chosen and precious living stones, whose body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and as we should do ourselves. We should do ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And we'll conclude on that note with some considerations for each of us. I pray to seriously take to heart that ultimately we would not be condemned, but rather lovingly challenged. Lovingly challenged where scores are low, but also encouraged where they are strong. You see, the examining of ourselves ought to bring about both right? Affirming evidence of the Spirit of Christ in you. My God, we need that. But also giving attention to where reform is needed. So returning to the imagery of, a, of that wick, of that barebone wick, I pray now clothed with the three statements of truth revealed in the passage. The three distinct truths of Christ is seen in his triumphal entry. We may now examine ourselves in our shared efforts to represent him to the world accordingly as his loyal subjects. Starting with, as a prideful man or woman, do you pursue humility by the grace of God? We're prideful. That's something that you haven't acknowledged yet. Acknowledge it now. We are prideful through and through. So as a prideful man or woman, do you pursue humility by the grace of God? Would you agree with A.W. Pink, who says, and I love this quote, he says, humility is not the product of direct cultivation. Rather, it is a byproduct Listen, he says, the more I try to be humble, the less shall I attain unto humility. <laughs> That's so good. But if I, truly, if I am truly occupied with that one who was meek and lowly in heart, King Jesus, if I am constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of his word, then shall I be changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. I love that quote. It's so spot on. In the words of John the Baptist, He, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. Or as the Apostle Paul said, no longer, I no longer live, we are to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. 
Are you in stride with this? And does your life accordingly make the statement, I belong to the king? A statement made when you enter your workplace, when you enter your classroom or a classroom, when you enter your household, your own household, or others' household, when you enter a wrestling mat or a swim meet, when you enter a conversation, when you enter an opportunity to evangelize or share the gospel, when you enter an argument, a business transaction, I mean, wherever you enter and with whomever is the humility of Christ present with you and in you. When you enter a difficult situation of any sort, marriage trouble, health crisis, financial crisis, can you humbly seek help and receive it? from whomever God would provide it through. I mean, remember, King Jesus entered Jerusalem on a borrowed colt, ate the Passover in a borrowed chamber, was buried in a borrowed tomb. He received help. Are you willing to be humble like him and receive help yourself? Doing so, embodying the humility of Christ, sounds forth your worship of him. They are linked. They're not able to be separated, all right? The byproduct of humility by truly being occupied with the one who was meek and is meek and lowly in heart sounds forth the statement of truth of your worship of him as king. They go together. Do you see that? They're one and the same in a sense, even though they are distinct. They are stating plainly that you love Jesus, that you love his word, you love his people, the church. You are on mission for his kingdom. In short, in the words of God, Titus 2.10, such is the life that adorns the gospel of his son, whose accolades alone you care to hear at the entrance into his kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your master. Do these Christ-exalting qualities register to you about your life? Do you take inventory you know, do you, do you monitor whether or not these are regular, regularly seen in your life? Failures, faults, shortcomings, and the like in them are present, yes, for all of us. But 
Are they on your radar? Are you mindful of them? Do you care whether or not these Christ-exalting attributes are exhibited from your life? Giving thought to them, examining yourself as Paul instructs us to do, God's word, the Holy Spirit through Paul, taking inventory over your life, a living stone, the temple of the Holy Spirit, is itself, Christian, is itself a Christian virtue, a a quality signifying that you indeed belong to the King, whose lives in word and deed proclaim the excellencies of his name, who called you out of darkness and into his glorious light. Let's pray. King Jesus, there is none to compare. We could ask the question, who is like you? But the answer quickly follows, no one, nothing compares to the King of glory. The creator of all the universe, through whom and for whom all things exist, is a humble King, is a humble God. And Jesus, with a quiet confidence, with certainty in fulfilling the Father's will, with your eyes set on fulfilling the mission he sent you to do, to rescue us, to bring in the new covenant with a surpassing glory of the old. You are a victorious king. You did so. You did not deviate the slightest. And you are humble. And we give you praise. We give you thanks. For we are undeserving. Called out from darkness into your glorious light. Our prayer, God. That we would operate individually and even corporately as a church. Monitoring, being mindful of our representation of you to one another and to this world in which we live and to the areas that you have placed us of influence. That we would be humble, that your humility would be present with us and in us. That we would be so truly captivated by you, Lord Jesus, that there would be a byproduct of humility, of your humility working in us. A humility that weeps over sin, over anything that would break your heart, or over anything that would grieve your spirit, that we ourselves would be grieved. A humility that is confident, that can go into the lion's den that can go into areas where they, in, 
in an offensive manner to proclaim in meekness the hope that we have in Jesus. To do so with respect and gentleness, but boldness, with a courageous heart, not in ourselves, but with the message, with the treasure of the message that is hidden in us. And the power of your spirit as you would be making your appeal through us. God, help us as your loyal subjects, as your servants, live this out. I know, God, there is, there is opportunity that awaits. I know there is good works that you have prepared from beforehand that we should walk into by faith. And so I pray, my God, help us Mature us, grow us, lead us to do so. That we would no longer live for ourselves, but for you who gave your life and is raised again. How this is expressed, how this works itself out, God, make it known to us as we pursue it, as we seek you in it, God. Make it known that our lives truly would be expressions of worship, that we are so fixed upon you and for your kingdom, on mission for the gospel to make disciples of all nations, whether it be within this nation and those who share at the dinner table with us, or within our neighborhood, within this Valley, God, in Ireland, as Jason and Amanda are doing, in Alaska, as the Millers, God, just may we always be in such a mindset, having our eyes on things that are not seen because they are eternal and not set on that which is seen, which is passing away. God, lead us to operate in this manner that we would be, as Christ's representatives, as ambassadors for him, humble, seen as worshipers of Jesus, and ones who take seriously their Christian faith, one who examine their lives and discern if repentance is present and where, with that examining God where you would show where you would expose areas of reform that we would be quick to obey that we would be heartbroken by it but spare because we know in whom we believe we know with Christ there is new beginnings. There is hope always. So grow us, I pray, Father, in this. For the glory of your name and the magnifying of our risen, humble King Jesus, I ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. 
please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.